Good morning. Well, it may be a new year, but we are doing the same sermon series. So we are still in 1 Corinthians. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. For those of you who are new, what we've been doing is going through this book of 1 Corinthians because when we look at kind of the issues the 1 Corinthians were going through in the 1st century, we see a lot of parallels in the 21st century. And so we thought we would go through issue by issue and look at what is applied to our lives today. So we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians 14. And what better way to start 2019 than talking about tongues and prophecy? Yes, I'm just as nervous as you, which is fine, right? We don't come across it very often. And when we do, it's usually in some experience. But before we get to that, I have, I have a question to ask. Um, what... Has there ever been a time in your life, a moment that was so significant, that changed everything about how you thought about the past, about how you thought about the future, about who you were as a person? I'm not, I'm not talking about your sports team losing in the 2011 Stanley Cup Finals. I'm not talking about the Seahawks loss last night. I'm not talking about children being born. I am talking about something that shakes you to your core, a tectonic shift in your life. M- mine came in June, June 25th, 1999, as I held the, the hand of my dying mom to watch her breathe her last breath to watch the heart monitor go flat, to feel her body go cold, changed everything. It changed how I thought about my childhood. It changed how I thought about my future, what my fears were, what my goals were, what I might do with my life. It changed how I thought about God, family, the purpose of life. It changed everything. The early church, though, had had a similar experience, one of that magnitude. You see, when Christ came to this earth and he gathered disciples around them and showed them how to live and live this perfect life and then died the death that he shouldn't die and was raised again on the third day and then ascended to heaven, the disciples were left wondering what to do. You see, Jesus had promised help, but they weren't sure what that looked like. And so they huddled in an upper room where they had had their last supper in fear The Jews had just taken their leader and killed him and were out for vengeance. There were guys like Paul, who at that point was known as Saul, who was hunting anybody who would follow Jesus and call and kill them. And so they sat in an upper room scared, and in that moment, the Spirit of God in Acts chapter 2 rests upon them in tongues of fire and they are filled with a boldness, with a gift, with something that changed history forever. They started to speak in tongues. 
that were understood by those who had gathered around Jerusalem as far as you could imagine, not on their own will, but because of the Spirit empowering them to speak so. And those that were around were drawn to them saying, is that Egyptian that I hear? How does that Galilean do that? He's just a fisherman. And then Peter stands up and prophesies on who Christ was and and requires repentance and turning from their sin and trusting in Christ. And 3,000 come to faith. That day changed everything. In that the Spirit of God did not leave us helpless, but gave us a helper to empower us on his mission for his glory. And he didn't just stop with the disciples. You see, Peter's having a dream about how he should be eating unclean foods in Acts chapter 10. And Cornelius is praying that God would send somebody to teach him. And Peter's drawn to Cornelius. And when Peter preaches the gospel to him, Cornelius believes and is baptized. And he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And his household speaks in tongues and extols God. And then in Acts chapter 19, when Paul is visiting Ephesus, there's 12 disciples there who believed John the Baptist and were baptized into John the Baptist's baptism, just a baptism of water. Paul says, well, you need to be baptized in Christ. And so they are, and he lays his hands upon them, and they speak in tongues and prophesy. And this became the normative thing that would happen as the church expanded. Paul would go into cities, people would come to know Christ, the Spirit of God would rest on them, and this gifting of the Spirit would manifest in multiple ways. People would be healed, people would, be, um, would speak in tongues, would prophesy, and this became the normal way church life went. However, with any church... People take a good thing and distort it, which is what the first Corinthians did here in our passage. So Paul looks to correct them, to show what is actually true, and to show them a better way. So let's read together Acts 14, 1 through 19. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if your tongue, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. 
But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he might interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So, oh, giggles, already we're in trouble. Okay, we've got to look at this in three ways. First, we need to understand tongues. Second, we need to understand prophecy. And third, we need to understand growth. So, let's try and understand tongues. Now, now this is, is a monumental task. When you start to look into tongues in the Bible as it's manifest and how people interpret this particular word and the words surrounding it, you can get sucked into a rabbit hole that will take your life to figure out. And there is a range of biblically faithful positions on tongues. However, we need to understand what Paul is talking about here. And it's clear that at least what we can understand is that they were either human languages or some sort of ecstatic speech. Now, depending on how you understand the word tongues in Greek and its surrounding words, you might come to the conclusion that it is only languages that we would speak today, Farsi and Japanese and Korean and English and so on and so forth. But you can also interpret those words to have a bit of a broader range and include what we would call ecstatic tongues. What Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1 as tongues of angels. Now, in that particular spot, Paul is talking about it in a bit of a, a hypothetical circumstance, so how much weight we can put on that is, is for question. But it is safe to say that the tongues Paul is talking about here are languages that are either human or angelic and that have a purpose. I think that from this passage, we can at least see five qualities that come along with these tongues. First, tongues are directed towards God. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Tongues is not a human-to-human experience. Tongues is a human-to-God experience. 
It is a communion with God, with the holy God, not with humanity primarily. Paul puts it in this place intentionally in that he wants to make clear that this has very little to do with this relationship and a lot to do with this relationship, which is important as we move forward. Second, it is not understood. Tongues are not understood. Now that seems funny. It's not understood in in two ways. First, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 9. So with yourselves, if if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. It seems here what Paul is pointing out is that the manifestation of the spiritual tongues that the Corinthians were experiencing were unintelligible to those who were hearing it. He talks about later in verse 23, 24, 25, that if an outsider would come in and hear you speak tongues, they would think you are foolish, that you are drunk, that you are possessed, because it wouldn't make any sense to them. It was, it was unintelligible, ununderstandable to the hearer. He, he kind of augments this with, with his instrument analogy. He says, look, like if, if a harp plays indistinct notes, like you can't hear the G or the D or the C, how will you know it's music? Or if the bugle is sounded not in the correct way, how will you know whether or not to go to war? His, his analogy points to the fact that whatever was spoken was not understood by the hearers. But second, it's not understood by the speaker himself. 1 Corinthians 14, 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. I don't think you would need to pray for interpretation if you understood what you were saying. Right? Right. So Paul's direction here of asking those who have the gift of tongues to seek interpretation indicates that they don't themselves understand what is being said. That it requires a spiritual gift to understand that. Now this rightly leads to a bit of skepticism, doesn't it? I mean, it's directed towards God. It's not understood by the hearer. It's not understood by the speaker. So of what value could it be? Why would we practice this at all or encourage it at all? I mean, doesn't it just lead to misuse? But that's not Paul's view. For the third thing is it is a good gift. See, 1 Corinthians 14 verse 5 says, Now I want you all, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. See, Paul is not betraying his previous teaching in 1 Corinthians 12 where he says the Spirit of God attributes to each person an individual gift for the building of the body. 
but he's saying that the gift is good in such a way that I wish you all had it. I wish you all would commune with God in the way that the Spirit of God allows you through tongues. I pray that that would be the case. Then he doubles down on that in verse 18 when he says, I thank God that I, Paul, the apostle, speak in tongues more than all of you. See, Paul, as an apostle, was gifted by the Spirit to speak in tongues. So it is a good gift. But this, this is a way in which Paul can can talk about tongues in a way that frames it in the right manner but doesn't disparage it. See, some might say, oh, you know, this is, this is just uh, a mechanism for diverting controversy. You just don't like tongues. You have a vendetta against tongues. But Paul's saying, no, 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 I want you all to have it. I have it. I embrace it. You should have it. But it has a place. It has a function. So then what is that function? Well, first, our fourth point, in public, it requires interpretation. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 5, the end of it. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. This has two implications. First, it has value in the public assembly as far as there is an interpretation to that spoken word. Unless there is interpretation, tongues has little or no value in the public arena. But second, it implies that the gift of tongues is controllable. Paul goes on to talk about this in the next section, in 1 Corinthians 14, 28, where he says, but if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. This is not an ecstatic utterance in which you lose control of yourself and cannot do it, where your eyes roll back in your head and you fall on the ground and flail around and speak something that you cannot control. Paul's view of tongues is such that you would recognize the Spirit of God coming upon you and be able to discern if this is an appropriate place to apply it. That is an important distinction. I graduated from a charismatic uh, high school in which we would have weekly chapels and there were particular charismatic leaders that would get up on stage and routinely, publicly speak in tongues without interpretation. And I can look at what Paul outlines here and say that was not of God because it did not build the church. Either they did not have control, which eliminates it, 
or there was not interpretation which eliminates it. Now, having gone to a charismatic school, you would be surprised to know that I have not spoken in tongues. That is not a gift I have. Just in case you were wondering. But, I pray for it. Because I believe Paul when he says we should earnestly seek spiritual gifts. Why? Well, because of the fifth point. It is for personal growth. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 4 says, The one who speaks in in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. See, Paul makes a distinction saying that this gift is primarily used as a gift to build oneself up. This is a prayer and praise directed at God that builds up an individual in their faith. It is not primarily a corporate gift that we should see regularly in the gathered people with the exception of interpretation. So, it is directed to God. It is not understandable. It is good. It requires interpretation and it is for personal growth. So what about, what about prophecy then? Paul seems to pit tongues versus prophecy. Well, prophecy is equally as difficult. Maybe it doesn't seem as difficult because tongues, we have instances in where we can look and see what they look like and think, well, is that good or is that bad? But prophecy seems to fit into a different category. and We seem to either accept it just because, well, they were prophets in the Old Testament and so on and so forth. But the question is, is what is Paul talking about here when he's talking about prophecy? You see, a, a prophet in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, is different than the prophet that Paul is talking about in the New Testament. There is a quality difference between the prophecy of the Old Testament and the prophecy seen here in Corinthians. The apostles' teaching sit on the level of the prophecy of the OT, of the Old Testament. In that the Old Testament prophets, when they spoke, it was as if God spoke himself to the people. Thus saith the Lord. And Paul saw this in himself in Galatians in chapter 1, when he uh, is correcting the Galatians on their theology. He says, I preach the gospel to you, and anybody who preaches something different is accursed, is anathema. Why? Because what I've taught is a thus saith the Lord kind of a statement. It is not up for interpretation. It is not up for second guessing. It is not up for, yeah, but you didn't know. No, no, no. Period. And so the apostles' teachings sit on the level of Old Testament prophecy. But what Paul is talking about here is different. You see, Paul sees prophecy a little bit differently. If you would look at Acts chapter 21, verse 4, Paul didn't obey a prophecy that he received. The disciples entire in uh, Acts 21 uh, hear from the Spirit of God that Paul will be imprisoned in Jerusalem as he's going to Jerusalem. And so 
they come to Paul and say, we heard from the Spirit that you should not go to Jerusalem as a prophecy. And Paul weighs it and disobeys it. I'm sorry, what? That was the Spirit of God through these men, and you said, nah, I'm going anyway. Why? Because he sees it differently. We have the same thing further on in Acts chapter 21 when Agabus uh, prophesies about Paul's arrest. And he gets the content right, but not the details. How is that possible if it's from God? How is it possible that this prophet, what Acts calls him, got the details wrong? There must be a different category of prophecy. So... I think we can learn what that is from our passage here. I think a good definition for prophecy comes from Wayne Grudem, uh, telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. So in our passage, we see first that it is a superior gift. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Especially that you may prophesy. See, it puts it above tongues. Saying, look, if you're, if you're going to desire a gift, desire prophecy. I know tongues look really good because tongues make you look like you're closer to God. But prophecy is better. You should focus on prophecy. He doubles down in 14.5. He makes it more clear. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in, t- in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Prophecy is greater than tongues. Now it's important to recognize here that Paul is not creating a list of all of the spiritual gifts and putting prophecy at the top and tongues somewhere way down here. He is simply saying that in this context, prophecy is better than tongues. And he has reasons for that, which we will find out later. Second, though, prophecy in this passage is not authoritative. Now, that's an interesting statement, isn't it? How is it that it could be not authoritative if it was from God? I think that's a fair question. Isn't everything that comes from God authoritative? I think, though, outside of the apostolic position of Paul and Peter, whom had a special pouring out of the Spirit to grant them clarity as they wrote Scripture, these prophets sit in the process of becoming holy as well. And so there is a human element to hearing and speaking the word of God that needs to be tested. As well as there's a human element from the hearer of the prophecy and how that can be distorted or applied. So, Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 14.29, as he expounds on this a little bit more, let two or three prophets speak, And let the others weigh what is said. Is that true? 
Does it line up with the thus saith the Lord statements? Is that what Paul said? Is that what Peter's saying? Is that what the Old Testament talks about? If so, then it's true. If not, disregard. He doubles down on this when he talks to the Thessalonians in a similar letter. In Thessalonians 5, 19 to 20, he says, Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecy. But test everything. Hold fast to what is good. The implication? Should someone prophesy to you or about you, you can hold it loosely. Test it and see. It is not a thus saith the Lord statement. But it could be for your benefit. So test it. Which brings us to the next reason for prophecy. Third, it is meant to build up. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. This is the A function of prophecy, not the function of prophecy. Part of the function of prophecy is that it would build up, it would encourage, it would be a consolation to the people that are hearing it. Paul's view is that if you're going to prophesy to somebody, it should be with the purpose of building them up in Christ. John Piper, when he brought his congregation through this about 20 years ago, he was preaching on prophecy, and at the end of a service, one of the ladies came up to him and said, I have a prophecy for you, and you're not going to like it. He says, I understand, she, she said, I understand that your wife, Noel, is pregnant with your fourth child. Uh, the prophecy from the Lord is that it's going to be a girl, but unfortunately, Noel will die in childbirth. Oh, okay. Uh, John thanked her for, for her word and then went to his office and wept. Just sought the Lord, saying, Lord, I don't know if this is from you. I don't know how to test this. I need to leave this in your hands because I don't know whether this is true or not. Day of the birth came, and out came a boy. And Noel was just fine. You see, as we hold on to these things lightly, we can see, do they build us up? Are they making us more like Christ? Are these words that somebody spoke into my life, life-giving, encouraging, equipping me? That's a good criterion for understanding whether prophecy is good or not. Finally, though, Paul sees it also as a means for conviction and salvation. Further on in the passage, in verse 24 and 25, he says this, But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters. He is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. 
You see, when we speak the words of truth through the power of the Spirit, it will convict people. It will draw light to their life and bring out sin and cause repentance and worship of God. You want to test if a prophecy is good? Does it convict? Does it build up? Does it bring salvation? Does it bring life and make people more like Christ so that on the day of his return, he will say to them, well done, my good and faithful servant. Paul's view of prophecy is that it builds up the church, that it is not authoritative, that it is meant to build and that it will bring conviction. But Paul's main concern is that the Corinthians don't understand growth. You see, instead of embracing the gifts that God had given them and looking to the people around them and saying, how do I give this out to them? They were saying, look at how close to God I am. I can speak in tongues. That makes me closer to God. Look how, look how much the Spirit has fallen on me. Oh, I'm special. And what they don't understand is that that's not the intention Paul's mortified by that, which is why Paul is creating this, this corrective, why he's comparing the two, he's saying tongues are good. Yes, they have a purpose. Yes, but if you're flaunting it in the congregation, you are misapplying it. Why? Because Paul is concerned about how the church is built. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 or chapter 3, 10 to 15, Paul talks about how the foundation is Christ and his work in dying, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Then he says, and then we build the church. And depending on what items we use, gold, silver, bronze, wood, hay, will determine what lasts in the life to come. Paul's concern is that we are building with gold and silver and bronze. So when he sees the church misapplying what the Spirit has given the church, he is grieved. And we see this in his, in his emphasis. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 5, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. And the question is why? Why without interpretation is prophecy better than tongues? Is that so the church may be built up. And he says that again in verse, four, in verse 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. See, their paradigm was wrong. They needed to have a paradigm of how is it that God has empowered me with this gift to build into this body so that corporately we are made more like Christ. How are we built up together is the question. Yes, personal growth and maturity is important. 
but we work together for that. Now, why might that be? Well, I think Paul is intimately aware of how easily we stray. But I don't say it well. D.A. Carson does. People do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. Paul is intimately aware that the human condition is not towards holiness, but away from it. And that it is only together as we strive to encourage one another and build one another up with the power that the Spirit has given us that we will accomplish the goals God has set. This echoes what the author of Hebrews encourages the church. Do not, do not stop meeting together. Encourage one another. Throw off the sin that so easily entangles and Run the race marked out for you. You will not do this alone. See, God, or Paul's purpose is to show the Corinthian church that their gifts are intended for corporate growth, for the strengthening of the body that the foot would do the foot's job so that the body can walk, and the eye would do the eye's job so that the body can see, that the tongue would do the tongue's job so that the, tongue, so that the body can speak. And in so doing is healthy. It shines the gospel to the outside world in a way that is, that is more glorious than we can imagine. What then do we do with something like this? First, I need to recognize that there are those in this congregation that have been filled with the Holy Spirit and are using their gifts prolifically. And I want to encourage you that you are the strength of our church, that without you, we would be weak. Your hospitality and administration and prayer and mercy are invaluable to this church. Thank you for seeking your gifting and having the courage To use it. But there are those who sit here week in and week out and call Christ 
their savior and have a ton of squandered potential sitting in their seat. Spurgeon had a great quote. Nobody can do as much damage to the church of God as the man who is within its walls, but not within its life. Are you that person? Listen to me, if, 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 you, if you call Jesus your Savior, that means that you have the Spirit of the Almighty God in you. And that by His providence, you are sitting in this seat for the building of His body. You have been given talents and gifts that have an endless resource in the Spirit of God. What are you doing with it? Are you burying it and waiting for His return? Or are you multiplying it? In 2005, I had the audacious privilege at a very young age to preach in front of a congregation of people at North Langley Community Church. Now, it came about by a little bit of a deceptive way, uh, not really, but we decided I I was a youth intern uh, with the youth program there. And I was doing my internship in order to finish my biblical studies degree from CBC. And one of the classes I had was to, um, I had to preach a sermon on uh, the Gospel of John. It didn't matter where in the Gospel of John, but I had to preach it and I had to tape it and then we had to watch it in class. Super fun. Um, uh, only, only worse thing than standing in front of people is then watching yourself afterwards. It's, t- it's just terrible. I mean, it's torture. So I... Um, so we devised a, an event, we call it Pastor Appreciation, in where the youth decided to do everything. We led worship, we, we did ushering, we did greeting, and we did preaching. And that was the way I could preach and get filmed at the same time. It was great. It was two birds, one stone kind of thing. I don't know who signed off on teenagers handling the money, though, but um, well, we, we did it. it. It happened. So I, I preached on Jesus walking on the water. And and I preached on how it is that God is with us in and amongst the storms and waves in life. And I used my mother as an example. Six years earlier, I had lost my mom, and I talked about how it is that God had saw me through that, and how I wrestled, and God had brought me through that. And after the second service, a man that I knew barely, a man who who was in the trades, his name was Bill I talked to him on a few occasions, came up to me with tears streaming down his face. He said, brother, when you were talking about your mom, I I, I had something to tell you. God God would not let it go, and I don't want to tell you this, but you need to know that the pain you experienced with your mom, you will experience again. And I, I want you to know that God is with you. 
Oh. Um, oh, oh, okay. I probably wasn't super gracious as a 22-year-old young man. I'm sure of it. Probably was very cold because what do you do with that? A life-altering circumstance. Somebody says, guess what? You're doing it again. Whew. I was lucky enough to have some wise counsel at that point. Someone came to me and just said, I said, oh, this burden is eating me alive. Like, I don't know what this looks like. Like, is this going to be my future wife? Is this like, do I, like, am, am I like, is this like a death touch? What, what do I do here? He just said, just, just hold it loosely. You don't know where it's coming from. So just hold it loosely. So I did. From that point on, my dad met a wonderful woman named Linda. They got married, and she got diagnosed with breast cancer. She fought it for five years, and on November 16th, 2011, she died. A couple of days before she died, I was sitting in the room with her with my Bible, one of my friends was sitting beside me, and he said, it's at points like this you wish you could walk on water, isn't it? Oh, and I remembered the words of Bill. You will go through this again. But I am with you. And Psalm 23 became real. That God knew. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't need to fear evil, for he is with me. I am so grateful to my brother Bill for having the courage to use the gift that God had given him as difficult as it was to build me up in a time of need. At a time when my faith would have been crushed. His faithfulness reminded me of a God who is greater, who gave us strength to endure, who empowers us with his spirit to build up each other so that when we are weak, he is strong. Brothers and sisters, the Spirit of God resides in you. He is working in you to build this church so that the city of Chilliwack looks differently, so that we are encouraged when the waves of life come crashing over top of us, when we struggle with sin. Please, I beg you, Earnestly seek those gifts and use them for our strength. Let's pray. Father, I am so grateful that you have supplied us with your spirit. We do not walk this road alone. We don't have to manufacture our own 
power or strength or wisdom, God, but that you grant it to us. Father, would you please grant us courage and strength? Would you give us a desire to understand how you've gifted us? Would you give us the strength to lean in and build up the body of Christ so that you are glorified and we are made more like you, Jesus? Oh, only you can do this, Father. So would you please, would you please come in your spirit and do that in our hearts and in our lives? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.